Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI in the Future of Work, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Now, today's a special episode. I think it took us about oh, three months or so to schedule it, and I have a feeling it's going to be worth the wait. If you listen to the podcast, you know how much I enjoyed the discussion with Joe Raymond, CEO of Victory Farms in Kenya a few weeks back. We learned how technology is creating one of the most successful sustainable aquaculture farms in East Africa. We've also been exploring how entrepreneurship and technology are thriving around the world in different ways. The world's smaller than ever and access to talent, innovation, and capital are no longer constrained by geography. I met Joe through an amazing organization that's changing the world by finding, funding, and supporting high-impact entrepreneurs around the globe. It truly is not hyperbole to say Endeavor has had as much or more impact on catalyzing global entrepreneurship than any other organization. We're lucky today to be joined by Linda Rotenberg, the CEO and founder of Endeavor. Now, Endeavor serves 40 global markets and supports more than 2,000 entrepreneurs. The organization is directly responsible for the creation of more than 4 million jobs and about $27 billion in revenue. I can say from firsthand experience that many of the most inspirational leaders disrupting traditional industries owe their success to Endeavor programs. Linda's a role model for me, and I'm personally committed to sharing her story. She's the author of the popular book, Crazy as a Compliment, The Power of Zigging When Everyone Else Zags. She's been referred to as America's Best Leader by US News and The Entrepreneur Whisperer by ABC, Fox, and NPR. If you're not already, follow Linda on Twitter. She's at Linda Rotenberg, R-O-T-T-E-N-B-E-R-G. Now more than ever, the world needs more Linda Rotenbergs. I hope at least a few of them are listening to today's discussion. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Linda Rotenberg to the podcast. Linda, so good to have you here. Why don't we start by uh, having you share a little bit about your background? Well, first of all, it is great to be here. That was the nicest introduction ever. Everyone should come on Dan's podcast just for his introduction. So I'm going to say it right there. If you have a chance to be on Dan's podcast, say yes. That was like the nicest ever. Uh, It's, uh, you know, it's really wonderful to have this conversation. Um, So my background, I grew up in Newton, Mass, and uh, my parents had met as childhood sweethearts and had uh, thought that when I went to to Harvard and Yale Law School that I was going to have the sort of safe and expected path of of being a lawyer. And when I clearly had no interest and it became clear uh, at Yale, they thought, okay, well, it's okay. You can become an investment banker or a management consultant. And so when I decided to uh, go off to Latin America after law school to figure it out, they figured, all right, she's just taking a moment, you know, of time. It's like her Peace Corps stint, and then she'll uh, come back and get a real job. And in the meantime, I I was in Latin America and mainly living in Argentina, but working in Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. 
And I worked actually first on a project through Yale Law School, then went to work for Bill Drayton, the founder of Ashoka, the first social venture capital firm. And what I realized, this was the mid-90s, and everyone at home was talking about Yahoo and Netscape and Steve Jobs' return to Apple. And people in Latin America are talking about government jobs. And I was like, what? 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 Why do you want to work in government? Why aren't you? Uh... And I couldn't think of the word for entrepreneur. And I figured out when I was in a taxi with a driver who had an engineering degree, and we went back and forth, that there was no word for entrepreneur, at least not one popularized. And one of the things I'm, I'm proudest of among this journey is that Endeavor helped popularize the term for entrepreneurship in Spanish and Portuguese and Turkish and Arabic. These, of course, existed, but they weren't really popularized because there were not local role models. And so my aha moment uh, came when I just realized that no wonder no one who didn't come from one of the top 10 families in Latin America uh, was starting something. They felt they had no access to capital or to mentorship or to role models who seemed like them. So really, that was the origin of Endeavor. And then I uh, met up with uh, a guy named Peter Kellner, who other people said was equally crazy talking about entrepreneurship in emerging markets. And everyone thought this was not possible or not a thing. Uh, so we should, we should actually meet. So that was, that was my background. Como se dice uh, entrepreneur en español? <laughs> emprendedor. Ah, and that's this podcast. Emprendedor. What? Ah, sí, sí. <laughs> claro que sí. Uh, we just became multi multilingual on this podcast. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you told me your French is getting very good, so now your Spanish is as well. <laughs> They're equally poor. <laughs> Lots of room for improvement. So. Uh, so like I said in the intro, I, I've been so inspired by the entrepreneurs that I've met personally through, through Endeavor. Talk us through how it's changed over the years based on you know, trends, globalization and geopolitics and technology adoption, macroeconomics. What, you've seen so much. What, what, what has changed? Almost everything has changed. So back to this moment of Endeavor's founding, which was 1997, so the Thai bot had collapsed, right? Emerging markets were in free fall. And really, no one believed that there were, there were entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley or a, a, a small pockets of, of, of places. So the idea that we were going to find these high growth, what we call high impact entrepreneurs, as you said, which were people who were dreaming big and able to scale up businesses and execute professionally, and then would pay it forward to inspire and invest in and mentor the next generation. That was always the idea for Endeavor. This sounded downright crazy. I was literally known as Chica Loca, the crazy girl, for suggesting there were entrepreneurs in Latin America. Hence my uh, philosophy, which became the title of my book, Crazy is a Compliment, because I decided, own it, right? If people are saying you're crazy, own it. Um, so two early stories that just uh, will get people to understand where we've come and then, and then we can walk through today. Uh, both take place in Argentina. The first is a kid named Wences Casares. He grew up on a sheep farm in Patagonia and had the idea for the E-Trade of Latin America. Okay, 34 local investors turn him down. They are, we don't have a functioning stock market. And what is this E-Trade thing? And who are you? You grew up on a sheep farm, right? But Wences can sell anything to anyone. And Wences was so compelling. We took him under the wing, our wings. He became an Endeavor entrepreneur. We helped him recruit a COO. We helped him raise uh, his first venture capital from Fred Wilson, then of Flatiron Partners, now Union Square Ventures. 
and uh, Susan Siegel from Chase Capital. He ended up marrying my assistant, Belle, so I always say that Wentz has got the full service endeavor. But more importantly, 18 months later, he sold Patagon.com to Banco Santander for $750 million. Two things happened. All 34 investors called me up and said, uh, got another kid with a strange last name and a, you know, and a crazy idea because maybe we should uh, take them more seriously. And suddenly you heard not just in Buenos Aires, but all over Latin America, people started saying, hey, if Wences can do it, I can too. And two of the people who heard his story were Marcus Galperin and Hernan Gazad. They were uh, Stanford Business School students who decided to come home to Argentina. Now, if you did as I did, which is go to business schools in, the, in 1998 and ask people a show of hands how many were from emerging markets and how many planned to go back home, almost no one raised their hand, right? They were going to stay uh, in where there was opportunity. But Marcos and Renan decided to go. By the way, today, there'd be 100% people raising their hands. So that is just one answer to your question of how things are changed. Everyone is going back home. So Marcos and Hernan go back and they decide they're going to create the eBay of Latin America, Mercado Libre. Anyway, long story short, they become Endeavor entrepreneurs. Today, Mercado Libre is not just the eBay of Latin America. It is the Amazon, the Alibaba, of La the, the PayPal of Latin America. And it uh, this year became the first $100 billion tech company in the entire continent. And Marcos is, and Wences are, and are still very actively engaged with Endeavor and have done, as we said, and they not only became these role models, if Marcos can do it, if Wences can do it, I can too, but they reinvest in the ecosystem. They share their stories. They're investors in Endeavor Catalyst, our fund that now uh, invests in entrepreneurs. And that's one of the things that make me so proud is that it's, it's, it's the, the PayPal mafia, as I tell Reed Hoffman, our friend all the time, you know, coming to these, these markets. And it's not just one success story, it's multiple ones that build the ecosystem. But in answer to your question, Dan, just very quickly, and then we can dive in, you know, today, the idea of being an entrepreneur in places like you know, Brazil or Argentina or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia or Vietnam or Nigeria or Romania, or I was just on the phone yesterday with someone from Kosovo that has, had the, has this big company, it doesn't sound crazy anymore. It sounds obvious. And it not only sounds obvious to all of us uh, who see role models everywhere, but suddenly investors who would never, ever invest in these markets that seemed unstable, people are clamoring to invest in, in, uh, in endeavor companies and entrepreneurs around the world. And so we see more capital, more talent, uh, more ideas being driven in, from and to Every every place on you know on earth, and that to me is incredibly exciting. Every time I hear that story about Wences and some of the early entrepreneurs, I get chills on my neck. It's so raw and real. And I've met Wences, and he's amazing. And I've met so many other entrepreneurs. I was channeling uh, when I met Marshall from Privy ID from Indonesia. I don't know if you know him, but of I mean, course. the list just goes on. I mean, there's it's amazing. It's mind blowing, and everyone listening, you got to go out and learn more about some of these uh, inspirational entrepreneurs. What's the single most common, call it a personal attribute that applies to all of the high impact entrepreneurs that uh, you've discovered? Yeah, I'd say that over the years we've we've come up with this mantra of dream big, scale up, pay it forward. And I think this is what applies to every single Endeavor entrepreneur and every high growth, high impact entrepreneur that I've met 
who really wants to achieve change. Number one, it's about dreaming big. It's not about thinking small, but it's about solving real world problems at scale. And I think when we get into talking about the future of work and everything that you've uh, committed your life to, Dan, it's about really fun. Why are we seeing so many entrepreneurs around the world in fintech and health tech and ed tech and ag tech and right? They're solving real world problems at scale and using technology and digital transformation to achieve that scale. So you've got to have that big thinking um, you know, mentality to begin with, and you've got to be able to execute. And part of scaling is finding the team and committing to execution. But then what we've found is the entrepreneurs who make the most impact are those who pay it forward, right? The, those who reinvest their time, their knowledge, their capital, that's what makes ecosystems grow. And that's what's important to us. We're not just betting on one person at a time. That person is not only going to create jobs and, and generate wealth for their communities, but they're going to pay it forward to make sure the next person can too. And that's, that's in essence for us what a high impact entrepreneur is. So we've talked about a few of the entrepreneurs so far. Some of the most inspirational entrepreneurs that I've met through Endeavor are challenging traditional norms and cultures that don't value females as being entrepreneurs. Can you pick one inspirational female entrepreneur that you funded? Um, I've got some of my own examples from Endeavor, but I'd love to hear just knee-jerk reaction. Who's a female entrepreneur that you feel like really embodies the uh, kind of the founding vision of Endeavor? Well, I'll use two. One is one of my favorite recent uh, Endeavor entrepreneurs uh, who, her name is Vuvan, and she is from Vietnam. And she uh, w was also like an engineering student, MBA. She had big ambitions, but she got to, she came to the, to, uh, the US from Vietnam and she couldn't speak English very well. And she was in California in, 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 she was in business school and realized that no one was taking her points seriously. She felt it was probably because she was a woman and they weren't taking anyone seriously, but she felt that it was because of her, her accent. And so she said, all right, I'm going to work to improve this. But she, she did more. She said, it's not just me. I think all of these people from other countries are having the same problem. I see my friends from India and Brazil. They have different problems than I do and from Vietnam, but I'm going to solve their problem too. So she teamed up with a Google AI expert and they created a company called Elsa, which is uh, voice recognition to actually help people uh, you know, to, uh, overcome their specific accents. And what I love about Vu is that here she was coming from a culture where, you know, it's, re it's really hard. You, you come, you're, you're alone from Vietnam. It's very hard to, take, have, to have any money come out of that country. You're alone. You're in, you know, business school with all of these fast-talking people who think they're the next Mark Zuckerberg. And you decide that you're not just going to solve a problem that you feel and take agency over your own right, particular challenge, but you're going to solve this for people around the world. She just did a Series B at Elsa, and she I, she's just inspiring. And, um, and I love seeing pure tech coming from female founders. I think this is really important. We talk a lot about people who are doing things and it's fantastic, but a lot of them are in things like fashion and other things, which is wonderful. And my, my daughters are sort of beauty entrepreneur aficionados at 16, but I love that she is about pure deep tech and that's, I find very inspiring. The other one is uh, Latifa Watlan. Uh, this is a non-tech business, but she is a Saudi entrepreneur 
who created the Nespresso of the Middle East because she realized that her grandmother's recipe of seven spices took so darn long to make. She's like, no wonder all the women are stuck in the kitchen. I'm going to do the Keurig or Nespresso of, the, of coffee with all the spices, the Arabic spices, to, to ease my life and those around me. And she's so inspiring that she became our managing director. And she actually became last year the first woman on this major economic development board for all of Saudi Arabia. And she is incredible. And what's happening in Saudi Arabia is it's really on the on the cusp of this ecosystem taking off. And Latifa is at the center of it, finding all the, you know, the tech entrepreneurs, encouraging them to go global. And she's total inspiration. I hope I get a chance to meet both. You got me uh, taking furious notes. Can you give an example? So this show, we talk about uh, the future of work, the future of technology and how it's influencing work. I know a big subset of the Endeavor funded companies are focused on B2B, focused on technology, focused on emerging markets. Any examples of a company or an entrepreneur who you feel is really kind of helping, quote, define the future of work? What I would say is, in some respects, all of them are representative of the future of work in that I'll take one example from Indonesia, which is a company called Glintz, which is uh, like a, um, a LinkedIn, but realizing that, number one, talent, there needs to be a lot more work, actually, uh, you know, integrating and preparing talent for the the, the future in addition to making it easy to actually find people online, but also realizing that so much of talent um, is now remote. And when you're talking about Southeast Asia, right, you have a lot of people based in Singapore that are dealing with, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines, et cetera. And this used to be a challenge, right, for all Endeavor entrepreneurs and everyone we saw. It's like, how do you grow a company in Nigeria or in Brazil unless you can convince people to move there because there aren't enough engineers, there's not enough talent, right, to grow your business. Well, that those days are over. So I think that the entrepreneurs we've seen in emerging markets, number one, have had to learn about integrating remote talent, which is now all, you know, all our lives, but from day one, right? So I think they're teaching us that talent is going to have to be a hybrid of in-person and remote, and you have to build cultures around that. Number two, many of our, our entrepreneurs are the first in their countries to give employee stock option plans. There was no equity, right? So they have to really double down on the cultures if you want to retain people. And I think that what we've seen is the companies that break down don't have strong cultures. And so I think especially, again, there's going to be remote talent. There's going to be, you have to focus on your, your culture from day one. And you can't, you know, and it's, it's, it's not just obvious about, about the, the, the exit. So you really have to figure out what's going to motivate right, talent to stay. And then the third is just the fact that these entrepreneurs are operating in communities where they kind of have to, on the one hand, focus on their business, but on the other hand, be aware of what's going on. So we had during COVID, for example, we had uh, 3D printing companies in Jordan and in Italy both printing ventilators because there were not ventilators enough ventilators in the country, right? We had companies in Colombia and in uh, again in the Middle East becoming the digital passports for vaccines, right? In their in their in their countries, 
And you had a company, one of the top fintech companies in Nigeria is a company called Flutterwave. And what he realized is that 20,000 businesses in Nigeria were at risk of going under. And so he converted his B2B penance industry to be able to give them a platform to actually get their businesses online and to actually survive and thrive in the crisis. So I think that the other future of work, which we've seen is, how do we think about the community around us? How do we think of our people? The work has invaded the family and now family has invaded the work. Those membranes that divided work and family and community and business are all gone. And I think that the emerging market entrepreneurs have a lot to teach us because they've dealed, dealt with these porous membranes for their entire existence. You made me think about uh, Casio in Sao Paulo from Zenvia. I don't know if you met Casio, but such an amazing story. Essentially, it's an insult to what Zenvia is doing, but the Twilio of Latin America. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these examples, they're just... Um, they're all equally inspirational. And the example you gave about the 3D printing of ventilators, multiple Endeavor companies, uh, that's, uh, that's a mic drop right there. That, yeah, well, they realize that we have to solve the problem and no one else is gonna solve it. So we have to, we have to roll up our sleeves and, and, and problem solve. Now, you mentioned one interesting example that I hadn't really thought about, but the notion of how stock ownership creates culture. I mean, there, there, there are direct yeah. implications on certain mechanics that we take for granted in the U.S. Um, expand on that. What's unique about starting an entrepreneurial venture outside of the U.S. tech ecosystem where these patterns are well-established? Yeah, well, the, one of the best stories, actually two, came out of Istanbul. But Yemek uh, Sepeta, which is an online food delivery business, uh, founded by uh, Nevzad Edin and Meliv Demish. And they sold to Delivery Hero a number of years back. Of, again, it was the largest internet exit at that point in Turkey's history. Um, and there, I, I think it's not legal to have stock options. Either it's not legal or it's just not culturally accepted. It's one or the other. But the point is, if employees, even if offered, wouldn't even take the stock because they thought that it was a way to get at, to deny them cash or some bonuses, right? So at the end of the day, it turns out that Nevzat had created a ledger of every employee and what they would have been eligible for in terms of stock had there been a plan. And he and, and his board, they actually took 25% uh, of the, the cash earnings and distributed it in that ratio as if people had had stock, stock ownership. And now we have several companies coming up through Turkey who are doing the same thing. And they're saying, look, if we can't ex ante give this ownership, then what we're going to do is we're going to create this ledger and we're going to know what people meant and we're going to start a culture. And, and, and I think that this whole idea of who is owners, again, when you're coming from places where uh, the top 10 families control everything, this is a big psychological change, right? But I think, again, two things that we can learn here, even in the U.S., what can we take away? Number one is, if you don't have financial equity, you have to get more creative about psychic equity. And I think that that, back to the culture, it's not secondary, it's primary, right? And I think we can learn about that. And the other thing is that I always say that chaos is the friend of the entrepreneur and that when economies turn down, entrepreneurs turn up. And I think sometimes we expect in the United States for everything to be going on a linear path. And we're shocked, shocked, shocked when there's disruptions like, you know, COVID was obviously a huge one. And before that, the financial crisis. Well, if you're in an emerging market, 
you assume disruption is the norm, <laughs> right? You assume your currency is going to devalue or so your political situation is going to be unstable. And so you build an agile workforce that can, that can uh, be attuned to, to any sort of form of disruption. So I think there are things that the world can learn from these incredible entrepreneurs that are now coming outside uh, the U.S. And I actually think you mentioned the Twilio of this or the we've talked about the eBay of why. I actually think we're going to start seeing uh, first we're, you know, first order companies coming outside the United States that then we actually import here. This is going to happen going forward. I hope that happens soon. And if it does, or should say when it does, it's definitely going to be a credit to uh, to some well, I think uh, TikTok. It's probably already happening from China. That's right. And I think that's it's going to help out, right? QR yeah. codes. I think it's already sort of happening from China. I think we're now going to see this all around the world. I think Joe Raymond is going to export his model of aquaculture. That's just one example. We, we had him on the podcast a few weeks back, but I'm, I'm sure there are tons of examples like that. So on this podcast, I tend to talk about the world that I want my, uh, my two daughters to inherit. Not just How the world of daughters? work. 11 and 13. Love that. My girls are turning 16 next week. Oh my, you're ahead of, you're ahead of me. in the house. <laughs> Can we do a separate episode on your, your parenting uh, Yeah, advice? totally. We must. Yes. <laughs> I hope they still like you. They do. So far, I'm doing okay. But I was told that the worst parenting advice I ever got was uh, love them for the first 10 years because they're going to hate you for the next 10. So far, not true. No, but they put you in their place. For example, I was I was uh, generously, uh, for whatever reason, nominated for the Forbes 50 over 50, which I shouldn't now admit my age. But <laughs> anyway, one daughter, one of my twins said, oh, is in the Forbes 30 under 30. And then the other one said, yes, except less exclusive and for old people. <laughs> Whoa. I was like, okay. Whoa. You know. That one stings. <laughs> they have a point. They have a point. <laughs> Keeps you humble. One of the things I, that uh, I'm always trying to instill in my girls is that there are no can'ts. You know, anyone who tells you that you, you can't do this or you can't do that, you know, because of uh, your, your gender, you know, we're out to prove them wrong. You're, you know, obviously a great role, role model for my kids and, you know, for, for a lot of uh, aspiring uh, female entrepreneurs. What's it going to take for, on a global basis, for, for women to have equal access to resources, funding, you know, for, 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 for them not to feel like, um, you know, in some way, you know, th there's, a, there's a thumb being held down, <laughs> you know, that's uh, constraining their ability to, to innovate? I think that the days when we thought entrepreneurs were boys in hoodies in Silicon Valley is going to seem like an ancient relic. I think one of the most exciting things that's going on is the diversity of founders and stories that we're starting to hear. And I think that the uh, numbers of the small, small percentage of venture capital that, go that goes to female founders or to black founders uh, it's it's just going to be inverted in the next number of years. And I think what's going to be very exciting for your daughters is that they're going to have so many of these self-made role models. Uh, yesterday, the story of Melanie Perkins of Canva from Australia, uh, who just became the latest self-made female billionaire, right? Following, um, you know, on, 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 on the heels of so many others, uh, in, uh, including Bumble just a few weeks ago. The pace at which we're sort of seeing these self-made female entrepreneurs is, is exploding, and we're going to see the same with black founders and, as I've seen it, founders from all these different markets. So what I would say to your daughters is, number one, 
look out for uh, the, the the stories and get yourself opportunities with these entrepreneurs. My daughters actually, uh, they, they love nail polish and they wrote their favorite entrepreneur, Olive in June, and said that her Instagram was great, but her TikTok needed work attracting Gen Z. And now they actually are paid brands, Gen Z brand consultants for this incredible female-led you know, company. And I had nothing to do with it. It was great. So what I would say is uh, female founders tend to be responsive to customers and, and inclusive. I was so impressed that this woman responded to a DM for my children and then, then Zoomed with them, took it seriously, and then hired them. So I think one of the things we're going to see with female leadership is a whole um, females, fo they focus on, on, on culture. I think we're going to see that. We're going to see these uh, the, these customer-centric brands come, come through. And I think what's changing is when I started, one of the challenges was with female founders was getting them to realize that they didn't have to be perfect and that the, the, the boys would come with the half-baked PowerPoint and thinking they're going to raise $20 million in venture capital. And the, and the women would sort of say, oh my God, unless it's perfect, I can't go out and ask. And so I think that we're going to see more founders and the more founders to funders. And I think the more that women become the venture capitalists and the angel investors and pay it forward. Um, but I just, I'm a firm believer that this is not only going to happen, but the pace in which the change is going to happen is going to be so explosive that we're going to forget there was a time when we didn't see these, this, this diversity of, of CEOs and founders. I'm, I'm really that hopeful of the moment we're in. I shared the story of, of Whitney Wolf Heard from Bumble with my kids the day that uh, she rang the bell. Yeah. Uh, such, a, such a great role model. And so, so my 11-year-old started a, uh, a slime shop on Etsy. Um, so That's I think awesome. Need... I love that. And, and we'll tell and Josh like... Silverman. Great. Absolutely, that's right. Exactly. Please, please do. Um, she would, she would be be, uh, be great for cameos if he's listening. Uh, <laughs> we should get the we should get the kids together and, and talk about entrepreneurship. I mean, these are uh, we've we've got it sounds like four budding entrepreneurs under our roofs. I love it. You know, and I think that that Dan, and this is why I'm so glad you're doing uh, this podcast because part of the future work of work, I think, is everyone feeling a sense of ownership and whether they go out and start something or whether they just approach their careers, which are, you know, not going to be linear and are going to be uh, completely, you know, changing and agile and disruptive. I think that if you approach it with an entrepreneur's mindset, no matter what you want to do, I think that's, the, that's how you're going to best prepare yourself because the only thing that's going to be constant is change. And I think the fact that we see this globalization, you deal with AI and the digital disruption, these these changes are not going away. This is, and I think that um, I'm hopeful again that as hard as this last year was for so many kids in particular, that they're now going to have the resilience, know that they will have the resilience to get through really really hard things. And I think that that's that's the last thing I'll say is that these entrepreneurs that you and I meet in these emerging markets, they assume it's going to be hard, right? And what's so compelling about them is they're still, they're, no matter how great they are, they're still humble and hungry because they know it's going to be hard. And I think that if everyone listening can just keep that uh, sense of you know, determination, no matter what it is, and then the, the, the sense that we're going to make it easier for the next, the next generation, uh, I, that, that's, that's what keeps me inspired. You and me both. We're, at, we're running out of time. I, I really don't want to cut this one short. I've got to ask, 
is one of the questions I like to ask most of my guests is uh, your advice for a younger version of Linda. You've accomplished so much. You've got a long road ahead. What, what would you do if you uh, could roll back time? I would say that for a long time, especially as you know, a young, aspiring female leader of sorts, that I aimed to be superhuman, that I thought that's, that's the only way to get ahead. You've got to put your personal life aside. You've got to be strong and, you know, be, you know, tough and sort of superhuman. And um, when my husband, Bruce Feiler, who's an author, um, got uh, diagnosed with, with a, an aggressive form of bone cancer when my girls, who are turning 16 next week, as we heard, were, were three, so back in 2008, um, my, my world sort of fell apart. Luckily, Bruce survived, but it was a big ordeal. Um, a year of chemo, his entire femur re replaced with titanium rod. It was, you know, our girls were just beginning to understand what, what, this, what this meant. And I really couldn't uh, have that wall I'd created up anymore. And what happened was I was terrified that my then, you know, employ young employees were going to feel this was awkward and uncomfortable and I was like losing it and being vulnerable and emotional and they would all want to leave. And of course the opposite happened. And I'll never forget that two of um, my young team members pulled me aside and they said, you know what, Linda, you were superhuman before and totally unrelatable. And now that we see your vulnerable side, like we'll follow you anywhere. And so my advice to people, my advice to my younger self is be less super, more human. It's amazing advice. And thanks for sharing the story. Please, uh, what wasn't planned to share this, but tell Bruce that uh, Council of Dads is amazing. It's uh, right, right there, top and center on my bookshelf. Thank you. That will, uh, that will mean a lot to him. Yeah, no, no, I really do appreciate you sharing that. I said that was the last question, but uh, Linda, I enjoyed your, uh, your great podcast with Reed. Masters of Scale, and uh, I thought maybe I'd give you a chance if you'd like to plug the Mindset Challenge. Talk, talk about your, your partnership with, with Reed and, and uh, what that initiative is all about. Sure. Well, Reed and the Wait What team, the incredible uh, June Cohen and Darren Tripp, have, have started the Mindset, the Entrepreneurial Mindset Challenge, where uh, Reed is taking tips from Masters of Scale, his podcast, where uh, I was lucky enough to be a guest, but his other guests are super impressive and have really great advice. And to break it down into these manageable, uh, you know, 30 days of one tip a day, and you can you can go on uh, on on Masters of Scale or LinkedIn or Twitter and find find it, and there'll be ways to sign up. Um, but I think that this is what's great about what we're doing. We've 250 Endeavor entrepreneurs participating in this. Uh, beta class, this master uh, master class, as they're calling it. Um, but I think what what I think that what my takeaways are that each of us can break down. Entrepreneurship seems scary. It seems big, and we hear the stories, and they sound great, but they sound so huge, and like the person always knew what was going on. Where really, it's a if we break it down into a series of small steps, that each of us really can make changes in our lives. And so I think what this. Uh, master classes trying to do. And what I would say to anyone listening here is, you know, it doesn't take long to make one change, right? To, to, to take one, uh, one change a day and then over a course of a month or a year, a lot can happen. Well, Linda, we're out of time. 
feels like we're just scratching the surface. Uh, so many more stories that we could be telling. And I know we went way off script, but uh, thank you. This was so enjoyable. Well, thank you and for having me. And I look forward to many more conversations. You bet. Well, that's all the time we have. Yeah. By the way, when yeah. do I stick to a script? <laughs> <laughs> I know there's no AI in this. There, well, there was, well, Vu, Vu, Velsa. That's AI. See, there you have it. <laughs> Why we bothered to have one, I have no idea. This was a lot better. <laughs> I love it. Work, I think. That's right. Exactly. That's why I like our conversations. <laughs> By design. No, Linda, this was fantastic. And uh, we certainly hope to have you back to continue the conversation in the future. Wonderful. To be continued. Yep, you bet. This is Dan Turchin, your host of AI and the Future of Work. Signing off again. Thanks to Linda Rotenberg. And uh, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>